0: Welcome to Coaching for a Living, a podcast for coaches who want to build financially viable coaching businesses and make a living doing what they love. I'm your host, Alisa Barkan, and I am thrilled to have you here. Are you ready to take the next step in your coaching business? Let's go. Hello, hello, onion rings. Welcome to another episode of Coaching for a Living, friends. Today we are joined by a guest who is a multi-passionate entrepreneur, or what some would call a multi-hyphenate. In his case, this means he's a professional speaker, business growth strategy coach, virtual event design consultant, podcast host, author, and I'm likely leaving something out. He has been recognized as a networking expert by Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and Inc., and as an industry expert in the field of digital event design by JDC Events. As a business growth strategy coach, he helps his clients discover likely prospects who already know, like, and trust them, so they stop struggling to launch their offer. Since 2016, he has hosted the On The Schmooze podcast, and since March 2020, a weekly hashtag NoMoreBadZoom virtual happy hour. Please join me in welcoming all the way from his home in the Philadelphia suburbs, a TEDx speaker, HBR contributor, and Scrabble champion at least in his own home, Robbie Samuels. Robbie, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Elisa. So happy to be here.
0: I'm so happy to have you. And it's funny that when we first met, when that was many years ago, certainly before the pandemic, you were known as the bagels versus croissants guy. Tell That's us true. a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, that is my first book. So years ago in the before times, I actually spent a decade working to be recognized as a networking expert. And part of that journey was speaking on the topic of networking at conferences. Part of that time, I was still employed, and then I went full-time into entrepreneurship. And it led to me writing my first book, Croissants Versus Bagels, Strategic, Effective, and Inclusive Networking at Conferences. Because even in the you know, when we were used to going to events, we still needed some help making sure we followed through with our intentions to network and actually meet people. And it also led to me doing a TEDx talk on the topic, which was my, my biggest takeaway was about um, physical stance. So the bagels are these tight clusters, these shoulder to shoulder huddles. You know, when you walk in a room and you're like, I don't know where to stand because there's no way to break into any of these groups. Well, those are the bagels. But if someone in the circle shifts their body language to make space for others to join, that's the croissant. So it's both you thinking about how you're physically standing and whether you're approachable or not, looking for people who are more approachable, and then the mindset that you are there to meet people. So what can you do to make that a more likely thing to happen?
0: I love that. When I when I first heard the, the concept, it's so easy, right? Don't be A bagel be a croissant. Right. (laughs) And people will remember it because it's so memorable. Um, But your whole business, if you want, or not business because you were still employed, but the whole concept around your personal branding and what you brought to the table was around networking. And a lot of the networking happened in person. Well, in 2020, all of the in-person networking events got canceled, right. and you had to quickly find a way to reinvent yourself professionally. How did you do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, quite, quite the surprise to be basically poised to be an overnight success, 10 years in the making. Uh, 2020, I had a new talk I was about to release and very quickly realized that none of it was relevant that um, no one needed help with eye contact, business cards, shaking hands, body language. So I did have to figure out how to show up and add value. That was sort of the question of the week. Uh, starting really March 9th, 2020 is when I realized was like, oh, this is happening. This is a pandemic. This is real. And March uh, 12th, I wrote nine ways to network in a pandemic and shared it on social and via email. And it, it was pretty well received because it was very responsive to the moment. And then I decided to do one of those things, which was to host a virtual happy hour. And that was March 13th, 2020 was the first time I did that. And I've been using Zoom for a while, like for several years, but I had never looked under the hood. I didn't know anything about the settings. I'd never tried to make it, you know, be more than just a platform for me to communicate um, in in one sort of direction. I wasn't thinking about it as a group experience, really. and. Really, I don't know, people just thought I was an expert as soon as I started doing it because I knew more than they did, just even by little bits. And I had a steep learning curve, but it very quickly led to me launching a program that became a certification program for people to become certified virtual event professionals, which was great for speakers and meeting professionals who were trying to retool. And that launched in in May of 2020. And I've been hosting that weekly event now for two years. And it led to organizations hiring me to help them strategically bring their events online with less stress and greater participant engagement. And one of the questions I get all the time is, like, how did this all happen? Because I was able to grow a business from basically zero, because, like, I didn't have a business at that moment. It went away, to thriving six figures in eight months. And it was because I treated myself like a client. I actually, at the time, was a business growth strategist working for a company and, I was coaching about a dozen entrepreneurs a week through this crisis. And when I started getting all those inquiries, pick your brain, coffee chat, can you help me? I could have easily filled my calendar. And as an extrovert, kind of would have been happy to do that, like to have a chance to talk to other adults. Um, But I realized I would never give that advice to a client. I would never say, just fill your calendar with random conversations. So I turned those conversations into research calls and that is actually what led to all the other success.
0: Wow. Talk about quick, right? Your first offer essentially launched in May. April, which... mid-April, I announced it. Mid-April, you announced it. Yeah, So one that month. was like one month since you decided to pivot. So that was amazing. Did you have an audience that you shared that offer to?
1: Uh, well, it or was a combination of things. Uh, Facebook yeah. communities that I'm a part of, you know, like Dora Clark's recognized expert community was definitely a big piece of the early audience. But um, I had a, I had an email list, which was part of the, the brand building around the networking. I had actually just removed about a third of my list because they were inactive in February. <laughs> Who knows <laughs> if they would have cared about the stuff I'm doing today, but I, I had done that to improve my open rates, my deliverability. But, but I just kind of had to, to wake up my network and let them know what I was working on. So that fall of 2020, I created a really concentrated plan to be on social with content around Zoom, um, how to use it more effectively. And I created all these videos and really consistently putting that message out there attracted new people to me that were interested. So there was a combination of my sort of existing list, which was fairly small and my extensive network that I was tapping into, people who already had some connection, no luck like, and trust with me.
0: Mm. Yeah. And uh, later on, you released another book, your newest right. book or latest book, Small Big Results. Tell us about how that came about.
1: So when I wrote my first book, it came out in 2017. And right after I started working on a coaching program, which I didn't know, it was a coaching program or a court. Like I just knew I wanted to create something and it didn't go as smoothly as I'd hoped. <laughs> and I ran the pilot and that went well. And then I tried to run the next version and I had all these people look at my sales page, but no one sign up to talk to me. And meanwhile, I had all these people reach out to me and ask me to help them with sort of adjacent projects, but not the thing I'd, you know, I was pitching. And... Mm-hmm. I started working on some master classes, some free content to attract the right kind of audience. And I learned so much in the process that I started to work on a book. So in 2018, I wrote about 20,000 words for a book. And then my business kind of took a turn and I decided not to pursue it until I had a really thoughtful plan for what the book would lead to after. Well, mm-hmm. 2021, People had been spent about a year asking me about my business and how it had developed so quickly. And I realized I actually kind of already had the answer and I now had three years of experience and stories to share. So I was able to pull it out, brush it off and add more content so that I brought the stories to life. I had much more detailed steps and that is how the second book came out, which is Small List, Big Results launch a successful offer, no matter the size, your email list. And it's called that because a lot of times when you have trouble selling an offer, you're quick to judge, you know, it's because I don't have a big enough audience, I don't have a big enough email list, that's what's wrong. So then you go about trying to solve for that through Facebook ads or virtual summits or some other mechanism. But if you haven't involved your your like likely prospects in creating the offer, then you're really you don't know if it's the right fit. And that is that is sort of the lesson I had to live through. And it's the lesson that my clients often have to live through as well. Um, so we're just trying to help folks get to that realization sooner. So they don't spend years banging their head on an offer that's not quite right for their audience.
0: You're going a little bit against the grain here because a lot of the traditional marketing advice is build your audience first, build a big email list, and then sell to a small percentage of that email list. And what you're saying is actually, it's not the size of the email list that is preventing us from having clients. So if it's not the size of the email list, then what is it?
1: It's, it's that we tend to, as experts, right? That's when we're entrepreneurs, we're an expert on something. And it's probably because we've had to live through it ourselves, but it's also true that it's probably been a little while since we've been in that position. So we don't fully understand the needs of our market and the market has changed pretty dramatically in the last couple of years. And I think we'll continue to. So we we hear about a problem people are having and we immediately create this amazing solution. And we will spend a few months tinkering and perfecting it. And we might even pay someone to help us get professional videos made for a course. We get a beautiful landing page. But nowhere along the lines did we actually have a conversation with people that we're trying to serve to see whether this is the most urgent problem they are having. Are they even aware that they have this problem? Because that's, that's usually a big disconnect. Um, and so I think that in the rush to provide value and be of service and be helpful, we miss that step because we are so certain that we know what people need. The problem is that people don't know what they need. And it's true that we might have a better sense of things. So in my book, I talk about this concept that was first written about in Breakthrough Advertising back in 1966. This is not a new concept. I have a little spin on it, though. So there's the little P problem aware folks, right? Like the, a lot of times you hear this yep. called symptom aware, but I don't mm-hmm. like calling it symptom aware because from the perspective of your prospect, it's not a symptom. They think of it as a problem. It's
0: very real. So they That's have true.
1: a little problem. And that's the problem they're trying to solve. But you look at that and you're like, that's not it. Like there's a big P problem that you need to be paying attention to. So if we can, through conversation, emails, marketing, sales pages, video, if we could help move people from little P to big P awareness, if we are able to help them think about that bigger problem, now they're like, oh, I didn't realize. And now they're a little more open to hearing about your solution. Because initially, your solution feels just completely disproportionate to the problem. It's like you saying, surgery would fix this. And they're like, uh, I wanted a Band-Aid. Like, what <laughs> yeah. are you talking about? And then yeah. they walk away because you're like, not talking to them. Once they become aware of the solution to this bigger problem, they then realize that you are the guide who can help them implement this strategy, this solution. So then it's a question of urgency. They are now having to make a decision on whether to move forward or not. Before, they really didn't know. They, they just didn't know what was the bigger problem. But now that they know and they know there's a way to fix it and they know that you're there to help them, if they don't do it, they may reach a point where the cost of an action is too great. And when the cost of an action is too great and they feel that urgency to take some hold of this and do something about it, that's when they come back to you and they ask can we work together? That's yeah. different. That's attraction, right? That's not selling and pushing. That's just informing people and educating people. So I always say my ideal client is very aware of the bigger problem. They've got tools to help them try to solve it on their own, which is essentially my book. And mm-hmm. my ideal client looks at all that and says, you know what? I want to do it and I want to do it right. I want to do it fast and I want help getting it done. And this is super important to me and I can't put it off and I can't play around. That's the person who wants to work with me, but they can't get to that if I don't help them through the rest of the journey. And that's true for all of us who are working to attract clients.
0: Yeah. And I think intuitively we kind of know this, but it doesn't hit you until you do it. And uh, I'm sharing this from my own personal experience. And I told you this before, Robbie, when I was reading your book. I was in the process and I still am of, of writing my book. But I was in the process of writing a different book. And I stopped when I read about this little P, big P problem, and thought, hey, I'm writing the wrong book. I'm not writing the book that my audience needs right now. I'm writing the book that I want to write because several preferences maybe from my side or whatever. Right. So that has been a huge revelation and you know, you and I are very alike in the sense that we teach the same thing to people. So I knew this and I was still doing it the, the wrong way around. So- Why
1: coaches need coaches. Exactly
0: I actually, that. I
1: will tell you that I um, was, you know, I haven't talked about this on the air before, but I was just recently in the process of hiring copywriters because copy mm-hmm. is not my strength. I'm great on video. I'm great talking yeah. about things, but like getting it translated in a thoughtful way has always been kind of a struggle and a hassle for me. So at first I thought, oh, I, I should get I should work with a copywriter because I could learn from them about how to do this better. And I had all this angst about hiring someone. And I realized after like two weeks of interviewing people that it's because I don't think I'm as dialed into the offer as I should be
0: mm.
1: because none of them questioned my plan. Mm-hmm. And no one asked me the questions to confirm that the language I was using was the right language or even asked me how I came to know this or even said, well, I mean, I see what you're wanting to do here, but there's some industry best practices that you should be aware of. You can always break them, but do you know that this is the norm? Like no one said that. I had this one friend who's a business strategist and also a high-end copywriter. We had a quick conversation and he asked me these pointed questions that kind of threw me and it made me realize I want to take a step back and Go, I have all this great footage of, of testimonials. I have all these research calls. I want to go back and reflect and dig in a little bit deeper to understand: Am I am I starting in the right place with this offer? Mm-hmm. You know, like intuitively, I feel like the answer is yes. But what's the point of hiring copywriters who are just going to follow my lead if I yeah. don't take the time to re-vet this in this moment and mm-hmm. whatever energy I put into validating the offer now? it's actually part of the sales process because it's building the runway for the offer to take off more with a you know stronger launch when it happens and i don't have to delay it forever i could be like this is the time i'm going to commit to doing this and then i'm going to move forward i don't want to just like keep kicking this down the curb but yeah i think that every one of us can fall into this trap because we're experts and that's sort of the expert syndrome is is something else i write about in the book and, and how do you how do you kind of get out of your own way with this, and yeah. um, and really provide the value that people are needing? I mean, the fact that you decided to switch books, the topics that just saved you years.
0: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't an easy decision because I had already written a huge chunk of the previous book, but uh, you know that content can be used in a different way. Right. But I was thinking if I don't make this decision now, then I'm just writing the book for the sake of having a book published, not for the sake of helping someone with that book right this is not an ego thing and it shouldn't be and also what i think is common knowledge and i might have allocated maybe a chapter in that previous book is not because i've been talking about it for so long right. i need to actually expand on it and write this book before maybe i write the other one if i ever get to do it so yeah no really important um you talked about I want to go back a little bit to the little P and the big P problem. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned that for our clients that the little P problems are not little at all because it's their reality. It's their truth. And it's very present. Um, I know this from working with people around money issues, but also working now with coaches um, around financial viability and not being able to make their business work financially and so on. And sometimes what they think is the problem, I know is not the problem, but how can we, if, if there are any coaches listening to us who have the same issue with their clients, how can we make people aware of the big P problems while at the same time, not dismissing the little P's who are very present for our clients at the moment?
1: So, um, you know, there's that, there's that uh, saying, sell them what they want and then give them what they need. Yeah. So our marketing materials need to address this, the, the little P or else yeah. they're not going to ever think we understand them. We have to use exactly. the language that they would use. And how do you know that? It's because you talk to them, you research calls. Research calls are a great way to figure this out and also enlighten these likely prospects about what the bigger P problem is. The problem with how we do most discovery calls or research calls is that we just give them a ton of free advice and free advice is rarely acted on quickly. And it usually is overwhelming as much as they're grateful. They don't have a clear path. It's not a strategy. It's a list of tactics. And when they finally look at the list of tactics a few weeks later, they don't recall what it all means. They're not sure where to start. They can't decipher their notes and they don't want to come bother you because well, you were so generous <laughs> and so yeah. they muddle their way through until they mention it to a friend who tells them about a coach and the coach says here's two things you can do after meeting with them for a few minutes and then that's the person they hire to do a strategy call and like start working with them and mm-hmm. there's a way to avoid that and I, I call it my magical question and i actually i've got a whole video on this so if you go to RobbieSamuels.com forward slash magical Um, I will share the actual phrase with you and a video and an excerpt from my book to help explain how do you avoid giving away lots of free advice and still acquiring clients. But with a research call, I think the danger is in calling people, like getting on a call with someone and saying, okay, hey, what do you think about this? Do you like the blue button or the green button? (laughs) Doesn't matter, you know? And so instead, the way I like to start enlightening people around this question is ask people to come to a call. Let's say you're in the habit of doing discovery calls. Uh, Hey, can you come to the call with three questions, three scenarios, three problems, right? Three challenges, three something relevant to the topic. That little bit of homework is enough to get them to start getting their head wrapped around this. Then when they show up, you have your quick hellos, and then you say, well, share with me what those three things are. Now your instinct is to jump in and just go, oh, you just do this, this, and this. That's not gonna help them. Mm-hmm. So you wanna be a good coach and you wanna ask good coach questions like, oh, so tell me a little bit more about this. Like, how did you decide these three? Well, how are they impacting your life, your business, your bottom line, your employee morale, your, your, your home life, your sleep, whatever is relevant, right? What have you tried to fix this one? What's worked? What do you think would work? What do you think you need to make it work? Right. All those probing questions. And then you might even say, is there something you think you need to figure out first before you even get into this stuff? Like, is there something else that's kind of even a precursor? Maybe there's Mm -hmm. something that's come up for you that you didn't think to write down, but it's now you realize a, a bigger deal. Like what, what is the most urgent thing do you think to get the next step figured out? And you're asking them to place themselves in this conversation and to take some agency and to to really start to grapple with that. Um, I have this really funny analogy that I, sh- I share in a lot of my trainings around a poison Ivy, you know, if you come to me with a rash and you asking for anti itch cream, I could just give you anti itch cream, right? That would be solving the little P I could look at it and say, whoa, that looks like poison Ivy. When did this happen? And I can ask a bunch of questions, and I come to discover that every time you go in your backyard, you get poison ivy in another part of your body. And you had never thought of that. You had only dealt with each individual incident separately, and which is why you were very clear the thing you need is anti-itch cream because it's worked before. Mm-hmm. But you weren't trying to solve the problem of poison ivy. You were just trying to solve the problem of having a rash. So because I've asked these questions, you're starting to like, think about this. Now, if I immediately rush in and say, Oh, I have a friend who's got a bulldozer and he does landscaping and he could just clear all the vegetation down to dirt and then come in and build you a beautiful new landscaping, your eyes are just bug out. Cause like <laughs> you came in looking for anti itch cream. I want people to remember that dissonance when they're selling. Because when you're marketing and selling your offer, if you're selling landscaping and a bulldozer, to someone who's looking for anti itch cream, that's why they're not responding. But if instead you said, you know, let's talk about what you might do to remediate this. What do you think might work? Hey, do you actually know what it looks like? So maybe there's some education, right? Show them what it looks like. Teach them the whole like rule of three, you know, rule of three, leave it be, right? You teach, you give them some, some skills around this. So you have a little education, a little training, and you ask them to come up with some plans. So they go away for two weeks and they rope an area off, they put down pavements, stones and then they come to you and they say, oh my gosh no matter what I did, it keeps happening my kids play back there I'm not okay with this this is the difference between little P and big P when it's mm-hmm. little P, they weren't trying to solve it, it was yeah. like anti h cream now they're aware of the bigger problem wow, poison ivy is actually all, I can't just contain it in one area, it's everywhere what can I do And that's when you'd say, you know, it seems a little drastic, but I know this will fix things. I've got a friend with a landscaping business and he's got a bulldozer. And if he just comes in, he can just rip out all the vegetation, wait a week and then put in all new landscaping and you'll never deal with this again. And you'll have a beautiful backyard for your family to play in. Hmm. That is a big deal solution. But now it's like, whoa, I think I might want to invest in that. I want to learn more because yeah, I'm, I'm tired of what I'm, I can't just ignore this, you know? And at some point they're like, I want to move forward with a bigger thing. And I, you already know someone who's going to help me. I don't have to do research. I don't have to, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not going to, I'm happy to help you as you figure it out. Like that's, that's service in a different way. If we just hand them the anti-itch cream, that's really more like a lunch and learn solution. You know, lunch and learns when you come into a pro into an office and you do a one hour program. Yeah. It's like never enough to really get to the big picture. It's just giving and them a bunch says, of band-aids.
0: That was great. Thank you so much. And they never come back to you because yeah. it wasn't enough for them right. to solve whatever problem they didn't even know they had. Right.
1: Right. And they're and actually the book, like, they feel good about it. They're like, oh, I got what I need. I'm good. anti age cream.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I um. I remember in the book, you mentioned that sometimes these little p problems. There are chronicle problems Mm. and when that happens, we shouldn't even try to get to raise awareness about the big P because that person is so used to having a little P problem as part of their lives now. They're not looking to solve it. They're just complaining about it and that's it. Could we maybe think of an example when uh, that would be the case, uh, a a coach's client would have a a chronicle little P problem?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, people are more likely to seek out support when when the problem is acute, when it's when it's just started to happen, or they they they're actively been trying to find solutions and they haven't yet reached the point of like despair, like nothing's working. Um, and how long it takes to reach the point of uh is is varies depending on the person and their fortitude and resilience. But it becomes chronic when they have adapted their life to that situation. So if it's a person who has trouble sleeping, Mm -hmm. they at first researched all the remedies and they tried a bunch of different things. But in the end, they have found a way to catnap throughout the day so that they are not a huge grouch. So they've adapted. It's not ideal, but it's no longer the level of urgency that it once was when they were trying to solve for it. And if you come to them with a fan dangled, here's a shiny new way to solve for it. They're a little like tired of, oh, sorry to the pun. <laughs> they're a little tired of trying. <laughs> um, it, it's like, it's actually more painful to keep trying remedies that don't work than accept what life has given them. And mm-hmm. what if your solution works on the first try? Well, now their ego has to suffer through the realization that they've been living in this state that they don't like when Mm -hmm. the solution was there all the time. So it's just a really difficult place for a person to move from. And they're not immovable. It's not, they can't not be reached. It's just that if you're just starting out and you're just beginning to make an offer, make an offer to somebody who is ready, looking, Mm eager rather than those that are really like reluctant to try let the people who've got more experience reach the people who are experiencing the more chronic issue because they'll have the tools and resources and stories to help make that happen it's sort of like the job seeker who is actually searching for a job while having a job versus the person who's been unemployed for three years and feels like they're no longer employable like yeah different coaches would have different resources for those two audiences. And if you're just starting out, I don't think you want to be the one who's trying to help the person who's been unemployed for three years and feels like they just can't get a job. Um, yeah. That's that's like a difference between chronic and uh, the level of urgency being like, I want to fix this right now.
0: Yeah. That's very sound advice, especially for people who are at the very beginning because it's so easy When you start as a coach, you want to help anyone and everyone. And that's Uh a different conversation, you know, taking it to the niche territory, which you cover beautifully in your book. But it's because you think of yourself as being part of the helping professions, it becomes really hard to decide, actually, I'm not going to go and try and help that person. It's not worth it for me. It almost feels like you have this, feeling in your gut like it's not right because you're saying it's not worth it, but you don't want to profit on the on the back of this, right? You, do, you don't do this for the money, which again, it's, it's a different discussion. But I think that's very sound advice to think about what would be easy for me in well, the beginning of my journey. In the beginning of your
1: journey. You know what I would say? The other part of, of being part of a business is building up a really strong referral network. Mm-hmm. I had a client who spent uh, 18 years being an executive and career coach. She had a full docket, worked nonstop, all hourly coaching clients. And when we started working together, she wanted to launch a podcast, but couldn't find the time. And really, the podcast wasn't wasn't it. She actually wanted a book and wanted to create some sort of group coaching program. But at the first, she like didn't feel like she could name all those desires. So... The way she had to move forward was to get clarity about who her ideal clients were of all the types of people she'd work with, because she said yes to every referral. And the way she figured this out was she thought about her network and she realized that other people she knew were better suited for some of the people that she'd been working with that were not bringing her the most joy. And the exercise I had her do was make a list of all of your clients, rank your, you know, one through three, how much you enjoy working with them and then put in their dollar amounts annually that you expect to earn in the next year and then sort it so that the dollar amounts range from top to bottom. Well, look at the ones towards the bottom and check out whether you enjoy working with them. (laughs) If the answer is not really, those are the clients you need to fire and you need to direct them to others in your network. And from that point forward, don't say yes to anyone else who fits that description, but give them the right referral and same ways, like make it really known with your network, the kind of referrals you would love to do and you're really qualified to do. And sometimes like I have a friend who loves working with the most difficult coaching clients in a company like that's his (laughs) thing, like he is really. He's kind of competitive about it. And he's like, no, give me the ones that are like the most uncoachable. But that's great for him to know that. But he then shouldn't waste his time on the really easy ones either, right? Because he's going to fill up his day. And so it's not that you avoid the difficult. It's that you find what is yours and you give the rest out to your network and vice versa. You attract in the ones you really want. If you don't do that, you're not actually serving your higher purpose and you're not providing the best quality care to the people who are seeking help, if there's someone else who could do a better job or just even be more joyful in doing it, that actually we'd be better for for everyone if we all just sort of said yes to those kinds of opportunities.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you make a great point there about, let your network know who is it that you want to work with and Mm -hmm. what kind of referrals do you want to receive from them? But in order to do that, you need to know yourself, right? What is it that you do? What's your offer? Who are you serving? And how are you helping them? That's really important in the beginning. A lot of people are nervous about niching down because they think they'll miss out on opportunities or uh, more clients or whatever. You're a multi-hyphenate, so... You have multiple passions, but you still yeah. talk about the importance of finding a niche and sticking to that at least in the beginning so that people get to know you for something before you can expand your offering.
1: So I am a multi-passion entrepreneur and I have distinct areas in my business, but each one has an ideal client. Yeah and so if you're asking me my coaching, I coach entrepreneurial women, in their 50s and beyond who are looking to grow their impact and income through a new revenue stream of some kind that's probably like a a new one-to-many group coaching program or a mastermind or a course and they just feel like they don't have time to waste and they're not sure where to start and while they're an expert in a lot of things and they have a ton of experience this is making them feel like a novice again because they're just a little out of their comfort zone and it's been a while since they've been out of their comfort zone so yeah Those are my people. And I've actually had an interesting sort of pushback because I'm so clear. People then say, well, what about people who are less than 50? What about people who aren't women? And I'm like, well, I could market to this specific audience. That's the language I'm going to use. That's that's who I'm going to reach out to and ask questions to when I'm creating something. If it attracts someone else, I'm not going to immediately say no if I think it would fit. So I have this year long coaching program and my friend Christopher is in it (laughs) and he does not identify as an entrepreneur, women in his fifties, you know, like, so, but, but then, so there's a demographic and there's a psychographic as a psychographic. He actually does fit because he is looking to build new revenue streams and he wants to get started right now. And he's very coachable and he's very willing and, you know, so. It's, there's sort of a way which you, you start with this demographic description and then you start to layer in the psychographics of where are people in life? Where are they in their career? What are their deepest needs and desires? But it's really hard to figure that out without first identifying the demographic. And then then you can be a little looser about the who. But as far as referability, being really well known as the go-to expert for your topic within a specific industry would lead to far more referrals than to be the general expert on this topic for all industries. Because then I will never think, oh, banking, I've got to call so-and-so, right? Like that would be the better way to be known and to lead initially. And then you might expand from banking to finance, (laughs) from finance to HR. You can slowly morph out over time, but initially being a generalist can can actually cause confusion in your marketplace. Like, how do I refer you? You're just, you help everyone. And I discovered that with networking. That was my first passion was to teach networking. And I had a really hard time trying to find the right audience. Ultimately, (laughs) this is so funny. I still teach networking. I now teach business development. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it's still networking. It's still reaching out to people and having calls and having conversations and it's just that it's 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 focused around business development, which has a really clear outcome that's measurable, and people will pay for that outcome. So yeah, you've got to sort of take your gift and figure out what is the audience that wants that gift that you would be happy to serve,
0: and that would be willing and able to pay for it, right?
1: Yes. Well, it's really interesting because I was having a conversation about like there are people who want to work with students, and I said, yeah, but it's the parents then that you have to convince. Or maybe it's yeah. the school, the institution, like yeah. maybe it's the alumni network. Like you like you could reach an audience that themselves are not able to pay, but then you have to think like, well, who is, in, in whose best interest <laughs> besides that person's is it to help them be successful? And yeah, it's not easy always to find that audience right away. And that's where, yeah. but that's where we start.
0: Yeah. And that's where your book comes in, right? Because you talk step by step about how can step you do this step. and what what do you need to do in the first instance and how do you leverage the network that you already have what do you say in a discovery or a research call and so on and you've got some really helpful resources that people can access separately so i'll make sure that i link everything that is relevant to our discussion and also to your book in the the show notes below, but I'm curious to know, Mm -hmm. because you are the person who is kind of reinventing themselves um, all the time and expanding and offering something new and exciting, I want to know what is next for you and your business.
1: Uh, so, uh, first, thank you for mentioning the resources of the book. That's the Bay results toolkit. There's a 30 minute training. There's, there's workbooks, there's worksheets, there's master classes. There's a lot of great content in there to help you implement the strategies in the book. And I do have a personalized link for you that folks can go check out your, your, uh, show notes page to get to. Um, so next for me is actually I'm, I'm this week have, uh, fully launched a new membership program it's called wow. the Content and Connection Club. And the the reasoning is that I have a lot of great content in different areas of my business, whether that's business growth strategies or networking strategies for both virtual and in-person networking or virtual presentation skills and virtual engagement. So I have all this content and I've been attracting this amazing community for two years to a weekly event. So I've decided that You know, I want to merge these things because I believe what people are desiring is a mixture of content and connection. And so I have these online forums with those three topic areas, a place for people to share their wins, introduce themselves, ask questions, and be guided to resources they need just in time. Meaning you don't have to just absorb the whole library of content all at once. You ask the question and we will direct you to the right resource in that moment for just in time learning instead of just in case learning. What I'm trying to shift people from is sort of entrepreneur TV watching, where we just kind of watch one webinar and then another webinar and another, and we don't take any action to dialing in what does my business need right now? What do I need right now? And then getting the community support both in an online forum and in a weekly networking event where you're facilitated uh, virtual breakout rooms and Q&A sessions with me and me teaching a little something and knowing it's going to be a great experience. And the cost, by the way, is $25 a month. It's not about making a lot of money. It's about creating that intentional community. And I'm even giving actually half of it to a great charity called Feeding America, which provides support to food banks in the United States. So um, it's just really like I, I'm really excited about creating that intentional abundant group of entrepreneurs like who are coming together on a regular basis to to get to know each other and support each other.
0: I love that idea of uh, just in time learning versus just in case learning because we sometimes use courses and webinars and masterclasses as an excuse to say that we're doing something when actually we're not doing anything unless we implement the things that we've learned in those courses. So that sounds like an amazing opportunity, Robbie, and I will make sure to link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah,
1: that's the, the uh, contentandconnectionclub.com.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for today's conversation and for sharing so openly with us so many truth bombs to hear (laughs) and so many nuggets of wisdom I want to thank you so much for your time and for your energy and it was a pleasure having you on the show
1: thank you so much
0: thank you for listening to this episode of coaching for a living if you enjoyed it and you'd like to help the podcast grow please leave a review on apple podcasts and share this episode with your coaching friends and colleagues Alright, that's it for today. I'm Alisa Barkan and I'll catch you next time.